Chapter 4, Part 2 of The Making of a Nation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Making of a Nation The Beginning of Israel's History by Charles Foster Kent. Chapter 4, Part 2. 4. AIM OF THE BIBLICAL WRITERS IN RECOUNTING THE FLOOD STORY The practical question which at once suggests itself is, what place or right has this ancient Semitic tradition, if such it is, among the biblical narratives? At best, the historical data which it preserves are exceedingly small and of doubtful value. Is it possible that the prophetic and priestly historians found these stories on the lips of the people, and sought in this heroic way to divest them of their polytheistic form and in certain respects immoral implications. A minute comparison of the Babylonian and biblical accounts indicates that this may perhaps be precisely what has been done, but the majestic just guard of the biblical narratives is far removed from the capricious intriguing guards of the Babylonian tradition, who hang like flies over the battlements of heaven, stupefied with terror because of the destruction which they had wrought. Each of the biblical narrators seems to be seeking also by means of these illustrations to teach certain universal moral and religious truths. In this respect, the two variant biblical narratives are in perfect agreement. The destruction of mankind came not as the fiat of an arbitrary deity, but because of the purpose which God had before him in the work of creation because that purpose was good. Men, by their sins and willful failure to observe his benign laws, were thwarting that purpose. Hence, in accord with the just laws of the universe, their destruction was unavoidable, and it came even as effect follows cause. On the other hand, these ancient teachers taught with inimitable skill that God would not destroy that which was worthy of preservation. In each of the accounts, the character of Noah stands in striking contrast with those of his contemporaries. The story as told is not merely an illustration of the truth that righteousness brings its just reward, but of the profounder principle that it is the morally fit who survive. In both of the versions, Noah, in a very true sense, represents the beginning of a new creation. He is the traditional father of a better race. To him are given the promises which God was eager to realize in the life of humanity. In the poetic fancy of the ancient East, even the resplendent rainbow, which proclaimed the return of the sun after the storm, was truly interpreted as evidence of God's fatherly love and care for his children. In the light of these profound religious teachings, may anyone reasonably question the right of these stories to a place in the Bible? Did not Jesus himself frequently use illustrations drawn from the earlier history, or from nature to make clear his teachings? Is it not evidence of superlative teaching skill to use that which is familiar and therefore of interest to those taught, in order to inculcate the deeper moral and religious truths of life? 5. Survival of the fittest in the natural world it is interesting and illuminating 
to note how the ancient Hebrew prophets, in their religious teaching, forecast the discoveries and scientific methods of our day. This was because they had grasped universal principles. Since the memorable evening in July 1858, in which the views of Darwin and Wallace on the principles of variation and selection in the natural world were sent to the Linnaean Society in London, the leading scientists have laid great stress upon the doctrine of the survival of the fittest, as the true explanation of progress in the natural world. It was apparently made clear by Darwin, and supported by sufficient evidence, that any being, if it vary however slightly in any manner profitable to itself, under the complex and somewhat varying conditions of life, will have a better chance of surviving, and thus be naturally selected. This principle, since that day, has been thoroughly worked out in practically all the important fields of both the plant and animal world. Moreover, the doctrine of evolution dependent upon this principle has exerted so great an influence upon the process of investigation and thinking in all fields of activity, that the resulting change in method has amounted to a revolution. The principle is applied not only in the field of biology, but also in the realm of astronomy, where we study the evolutions of worlds, and in psychology, history, social science, where we speak of the development of human traits and of the growth of economic, political and social institutions. It is necessary to remember, in applying such a brief statement of a principle, that the words are used in a highly technical sense. The word fittest by no means need imply the best from the point of view of beauty or strength or usefulness in nature, nor does it necessarily mean, in reference to society, best from the point of view of morals or a higher civilization. Rather, the fittest means the being best adapted to the conditions under which it is living, or to its environment. As a matter of fact, it is the general opinion that in practically all fields this principle works towards progress in the highest and best sense. But it is always a matter for specific study, as well as of great scientific interest and importance, to determine where and how the variation and the corresponding selections tend to promote the morally good. Especially is this true in the study of society, where we should endeavour to see whether or not the fittest means also the highest from the moral and religious point of view. The story of the flood gives us a most interesting example of the way in which the ancient Hebrews looked upon such a process of selection in the moral and religious world, and taught it as a divine principle. It is, therefore, one of the most suggestive and interesting of the writings of the early Israelites. 6. The Survival of the Fittest in Social and Political Life From our modern point of view, the ancient Hebrew writers had a far deeper knowledge of moral and religious questions than of natural science. They had a far keener sense of what was socially beneficial than of what was scientifically true. However we may estimate their knowledge of geology and biology, we must grant that their beliefs regarding the good and ill effects of human action have in them much that is universally true, 
even though we may not follow them throughout in their theories of divine wrath and immediate earthly punishment of the wicked. But is it not true almost invariably, if we look at social questions of every kind in a comprehensive way, that the survival of the fittest means the survival of the morally best? That the religion which endures is of the highest type? Business success in the long run is so strongly based upon mutual confidence and trust that especially in these later days of credit organization, the dishonest man or even the tricky man cannot prosper long. A sales manager of a prominent institution said lately that the chief difficulty that he had with his men was to make them always tell the truth. For the sake of making an important sale, they were often inclined to misrepresent his goods. But nothing, he added, will so surely kill all business as misrepresentation. Even a gambling bookmaker on the racetracks in New York, before such work was forbidden by law, is said to have proudly claimed that absolute justice and honesty towards his customers was essential to his success, and had therefore become the rule of his life. Although it is sometimes said that the man who guides his life by the maxim honesty is the best policy, is in reality not honest at heart, it must nevertheless be granted that in business the survival of the fittest means the survival of the most honest businessman. It may perhaps have been true in the days of Machiavelli that cruelty and treachery would aid the unscrupulous petty despot of Italy to secure and at times to maintain his dukedom, but certainly in modern days, when in all civilized countries permanently prosperous government is based ultimately upon the will of the people, the successful ruler can no longer be treacherous and cruel. Even among our so-called spoils, politicians and corrupt bosses, who hold their position by playing upon the selfishness of their followers and the ignorance and apathy of the public, there must be rigid faithfulness to promises and, at any rate, the appearance of promoting the public welfare, otherwise their term of power is short. If we look back through the history of modern times, we shall find that the statesmen who rank high among the successful rulers of their countries are men of unselfish patriotism, and almost invariably men of personal uprightness and morality and usually of deep religious feeling. Think over the names of the great men of the United States and note their characters. Pick out the leading statesmen of the last half century in England, Germany and Italy. Do they not all stand for unselfish patriotic purpose in their actions and in character for individual honour and integrity? The same is true in our social intercourse. Brilliancy of intellect, however important in many fields of activity, counts for relatively little in home and social life, if not accompanied by graciousness of manner, kindness of heart, uprightness of character. It may sometimes seem that the brilliant rascal succeeds, that the unscrupulous businessman becomes rich, and that the hypocrite prospers through his hypocrisy. If all society were made up of men of these low moral types, would such cases perhaps be more often found than now? In a society of hypocrites, would the fittest for survival be the most skilful deceiver? Or, even there, would the adage, there must be honour among thieves, hold when it came to permanent organisation? 
but whatever your answer society fortunately is not made up of hypocrites or rascals of any kind with all the weakness of human nature found in every society the growing success of the rule of the people throughout the world proves that fundamentally men and women are honest and true generally common human nature is for the right almost universally if a mooted question touching morals can be put simply and squarely before the people they will see and choose the right fortunate it is for the world that the lessons taught by the early hebrew writers regarding the survival of the moral and upright are true and that good sense and religion both agree that in the long run honor and virtue and righteousness not only pay the individual but are essential to the prosperity of a nation questions for further consideration had most primitive peoples a tradition regarding the flood how do you explain the striking points of similarity between the flood stories of peoples far removed from each other is there geological evidence that the earth during human history has been completely inundated what do you mean by a calamity is it a mere accident or an essential factor in the realization of the divine purpose in human history are appalling calamities like floods and earthquakes the result of the working out of natural laws are they unmitigated evils were the floods in china and the plagues in india which destroyed millions of lives seemingly essential to the welfare of the surviving inhabitants of those overpopulated lands what were the effects of the chicago fire and the san francisco earthquake upon these cities how far was the development of the modern commission form of city government one of the direct results of the galveston flood to what extent is the modern progress in sanitation due to natural calamities what calamities is a great calamity often necessary to arouse the inhabitants of a city or nation to the development of their resources and to the realization of their highest possibilities what illustrations can you cite how do changes in the environment of men affect the moral quality of their acts how do circumstances affect the kind of act that will be successful during the chinese revolution of 1912 in peking and nanking looting leaders of mobs and plundering soldiers when captured were promptly decapitated without trial was such an act right was it necessary what conditions would justify such an act in the united states would the same act tend equally to preserve the government in both countries subjects for further study one flood stories among primitive peoples worcester genesis pages 361 to 373 hastings dictionary of the bible volume 2 pages 18 to 22 extra volume pages 181 to 182 encyclopedia britannica 2 the scientific basis of the biblical account of the flood ryle early narratives of genesis pages 112 to 113 davis genesis and semitic traditions 
pages 130 to 131. Driver, Genesis, pages 82 to 83 and 99. Solas, Age of the Earth, page 316 and succeeding pages. 3. Compare the treatment accorded their rivals and competitors for power in their various fields by the following persons. Solomon, Caesar Borgia, the late Empress Dowager of China, Tzu Xi, Bismarck, the great political leaders of today in Great Britain and the United States, and the modern combinations of capital known as trusts. Book of the Kings 1 Machiavelli, the Prince Douglas, Europe and the Far East, Chapter 17 Did these different methods, under the special circumstances, result in the survival of the fittest? The fittest morally? End of Chapter 4 Recorded by Joseph Finkberg